So BOB, Coach Bob, I was hoping you could come out of the Trapper's cabin, clear the pass, and uh, meet me at a public tennis court down here so you can teach me the proper grip, the proper fundamentals, and the proper technique of the forehand so I don't have bad habits. Can you do that? <laughs> I can try. <laughs> okay. I can, do, I can do the first part. I can. The, the pass is open. So I can, I can get out of the, I can get out of the pass <laughs> and I can get down to a tennis court and meet you there. But as far as teaching you the proper or the proper fundamentals of a forehand, I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> I don't intend to tease because well-intentioned parents and well-meaning parents and, and kids that want to learn the game, this is what they think the process should look like. And you and I are, are just exploring a different way, aren't we? We are. Yes, we are so for sure. So I mean, when, guys, when, um, when someone comes to you and says, you know, what are the fundamentals of tennis? What, you know, what do you think they're thinking of? You know, like when I Google it, you know, I get certain answers. What do you, what do you think they are? What do you see? What are, what are people coming to you and thinking the kids need to play well? Well, they are searching for the right grip, the right form, the right technique, the right mechanics, the, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of the game, as far as, you know, as if it were black and white in those senses. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's it. You know, it's like topspin, you know, or whatever they perceive to be the fundamentals, which is usually something that is, you know, like the best form of the backhand, the best form on the serve, you know, and the best form on the forehand and the best form on volleys, that kind of thing. And they imagine that you you know what that is. There is an answer to that question that you have it as a coach and that you will be able to convey that to the child and the right. child will then be able to execute it. And then you'll be off and running and you'll be set. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. As we, this will be fun. As we dive into this, I have a few um, things to uh, reference some private lessons I did recently where I was able to, uh, you know, be a little bit more creative with coaching. And I, I think I really helped some kids out and I'm not saying I was totally dead wrong 10 years ago, but I hope to think I'm doing it a lot better now, but um, we'll later in this podcast, I'll talk about a couple privates that I had where, you know, we got some things accomplished. I thought that, you know, was not the traditional fed ball drill private lesson. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it'll be good to talk about different ways that I know I have, you know, even fairly recently, you know, not done things maybe the best way, you know, separated out certain aspects of tennis that needn't have been separated out from the fundamentals. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, it was not that many years ago when I challenged you to say, all right, you know, you had started the FRA already. So it wasn't 15 years ago. It was, I don't know, six or seven, whenever the FRA started. And I said, you know, why don't you just pick a day, a day of the week, Tuesday, let's say, where you don't say anything about how people swing a racket. And you looked at me and you said, I, that everyone would leave. I'd be fired. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> and I think you've probably gone a couple of years now where you've barely said anything about that and your business is thriving and the kids are thriving. So yeah, there's clearly a there's clearly a different way. And you can argue about whether it's a better way or not. But you certainly there's a different way than telling kids how to swing a racket and pretending that that's fundamental. Yeah, no question. In fact, one of my feedbacks from Seth, I mean, one of our kids that we did a podcast on playing college tennis. I mean, you'll have to remind me later to tell you the full story. But he said, this is why I'm here. He's like, I know this system works. I'm getting better. I'm going off to college tennis. He's like, this is why I'm here. I know what you say works and what we do works, especially he was referring to the groups and how we run the FRA and how much yeah. it helps them. So pretty cool. Yeah. And I, we get that a lot. So 
Um, but yeah, remind me to share that later. But um, this I'll will try. be episode. Mostly, mostly as I text you after each of these podcasts, mostly I forget things. <laughs> Rather oh, right, than right. Remind you, so don't don't count on me reminding you. Hey, so that's okay. I'll try. Yeah. Yeah. So this is episode eleven. So. If anybody's tuning in, you know, um, we have 10 others. We've talked about all kinds of things. We've talked about beating the pusher. We've talked about choking and mental toughness. We've talked about college and the path to college scholarships, if there is a path. Uh, we've talked about the game-based approach to groups, um, all kinds of things. So, and this is number 11, and this is going to be about the, quote, fundamentals and also diving into high-altitude tennis and what makes things a little bit different here. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a great spot to be a... 10k or marathoner or triathlete but uh yeah you and i know it's it's not amazing training grounds for tennis is it no it's, it's difficult because of the altitude and how it affects some of these fundamentals of the game and yeah. on our very first podcast we talked about the game-based approach and and like you just said it was mostly about you know setting up the drills and things and how you run the fra in a game-based way but I think that's the that's the way you have to start thinking, first of all, about the fundamentals of tennis. What are the fundamentals of the game? I mean, I agree with parents. I agree with people that you do want to learn the fundamentals of the game right off the bat. Luckily, all of the fundamentals of the game are present in the game itself, <laughs> right? right? Yep. Uh, they have to be. Otherwise, it's not the game. And, and you have to be able to learn the game by playing the game or nobody ever would have started playing the game. Yep. Right? All of the information right. needs to be there. And as this guy Carl Newell said, in the organism-environment interaction, all of that information has to be there in the game. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to learn the game extremely well playing it or that there's no role for a coach. You know, there certainly is. The coach can augment the information from the game, change, and we'll talk about that, changing little parts of the game to help people learn the game. So that's all part of it. But if you want to say, well, what are the fundamentals of the game? You have to go to the game itself and say, well, what the hell is the game? <laughs> and that'll, that'll give you a clue, right, as to what the fundamentals are of the game. And the game isn't to grip a racket. The game isn't to swing a racket. So those those are elements of the game. And, and as you build up from the foundational elements of tennis, the fundamentals, you're going to get to those things for right. sure. Yeah. But they will not be and cannot be fundamental because... We know, as we've talked about a million times, lots of people use various grips. You know, what's the proper form on the backhand? Is it a slice? Is it a topspin? Is it two-handed? Is it one-handed? You know, those are all proper. And, yep. you know, well, well, so so those, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't better or worse ways of doing any of those things, but they are not fundamental to the That's game. Right. Yeah. Well, um, maybe I'll start off by sharing a couple private lesson stories and then I bet that ties into some of your thoughts. You know, we want to dive into this further. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple quick stories. Um, one thing was Seth. Seth was so cool because he just looked me dead in the eye and said, you know, I'm here because it's, the upraise made me so much better compared to everywhere else I was trying. Your, the live ball approach and the hitting and the matches and the sets and the game-based approach, he just said thanks because it's helped him so much. So that was good to hear. And then, not shockingly, as a, as a higher-level player for Colorado – you know, he and I went right into tie breaks, you know, um, you know, I just said, well, with that, let's go battle. <laughs> you know? yeah, I right. mean, and, and, and the kind of things that we talked about were, you know, the kind of things that you and I always, that we mentioned in that first podcast, you know, when to attack, when to defend, or, you know, why, Hey Seth, why didn't you come in on that one? Or, you know, that, you know, maybe you should consider it a slice on that shot right there, or, you know, that could have been a good time for a drop shot or whatever. Right. The things that you and I think are real valuable for coaches to discuss. And we just had a great time. And, 
I got worse and he got better. So, <laughs> so, um, but the other private I wanted to reference was more, oh, this is a high school kid in Fort Collins. That's more of a, maybe an advanced beginner to intermediate, you could say. And he, you know, he has a, developed a fairly reliable two-handed topspin backhand. So, you know, we had stated in the last lesson that the goal of this recent session was slice backhand. Now, Coach Steve of 10 years ago might have talked him immediately about the grip, the swing path, maybe even where the elbow is, and stood at the tee and fed a whole bunch of balls to his backhand. And that may or may not help certain times. He might have even come back to me two months later and said it helped. And whether my lesson or not helped, maybe not, would, you know, it would have been irrelevant. He developed it because he started to hit. But what was interesting about the other day was I just, I just took a totally different approach to it. We just, you know, and I've done this now, thankfully, for a few years in this kind of situation. We just started to rally. We just started to rally. And he looks over. And he's like, what grip should I be in? And I said, you're going to figure it out. I'm like, right. I mean, if he holds a semi-Western grip, is he going to hit a slice backhand? No. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be impossible. So he, he drifted kind of towards continental on his own. And then he looked over and he said, it seems like to me the racket angle of contact is, is key here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes. So, so he's problem solving, right? He's, he's problem solving on his own and popped a few up, just crazily popped a few up. And then as he got towards Continental, he started to hit some good ones and we're starting to rally. And then eventually I kind of brought him in and we started to do some mini tennis. And I said, let's, we're just going to stay in that grip that you've discovered that kind of that knuckle on panel two. You coaches talk about the V he was in the neighborhood of Continental, which we both thought was good. And we started to kind of just rally in the short court and develop those soft hands and feel because he's really clubby. He's real clubby too. So like, just that rallying and the continental grip and the short court mini tennis was, was really important for him. And um, he just figured it out. Like he figured out the swing path. He figured out where his arm needed to be, figured out the grip. He figured out the racket angle and the racket path. He started to kind of have like a U shaped path to the swing just on his own. And he could tell he was popping them up. Then he drove some in the bottom of the net. And then he started to hit some really good ones. And he, he was just able to problem solve and kind of figure it out. And I said a couple things, you know, here and there, but he just was able to, he was able to figure it out. And then ultimately we started, we went back to full court and started to rally some more. So I'm giving him that live ball, right? I'm giving him that, the variables and stimuli that you and I talk about is critical rather than isolating the stroke and taking out the ball from the other guy. I'm rallying with him. So he's having to adjust and look at me and adjust to the ball off my racket and see the ball off my strings. And I think this all helped him. And then coming this later, he looks over and he says, Hey coach, seems like when I extend my racket out towards you, I, I, I drive it and have less spin. It's a better shot. And I'm like, that's exactly right. Yeah. I'm like, that's perfect. And he just, he problem solved his way through it. And he, the kid was hitting some really nice slice backhands 20 minutes in. It was cool. Yeah, and you might even still need the high one, you know, like to lob or to pop it up to hit more spin and hit a drop shot. So there's there's lots of different ways that you're even going to hit slice backhands. Yeah. And, and I would say too, you know, when you said, "Hey, we're going to come up into the short court," you were still you still had, and we'll talk about what I think the fundamentals of tennis are, but you still had almost every single element. Well, you did have every fundamental element of tennis still there in the short court as you rallied back and forth. We did, and I. You know, I guess 10 years ago, I might have talked more about the swing path or started with right. the grip. 
And this time we tried to get the skill down to just elicit those things on their own. Correct. And then yeah, the task, to, yeah, the goal, the task was what, what you focused on. Yeah. And he started to talk to me. He started to kind of pro problem solve and tell me what, you know, and what he was doing. And, and I just don't think that would have happened if I was a feeding or B barking orders, you, you no, know, look, it's all it's, through kind of like a rally situation where he could just develop the feel on his own. Right. And look what else he learned in addition to learning various ways to grip the racket and hit slice shots that are more or less driven. Look what else he learned. He learned how to learn. Right. Yeah. That's extremely important. People don't understand that. If, if instead he had come to that lesson and said, I want to learn a slice backhand and you told him how to do it and he was able to do it. Well, that'd be great. It's unusual. It doesn't really happen that way that often, but what would he have learned? He wouldn't have learned how to learn. He would have learned, Steve tells me to do something this way and it works. Steve's really smart. Well, what happens if you get hit by a bus? Well, he's got to find another Steve, doesn't he? Yeah. But the way you helped him discover that slice backhand, the way to hit it now, now he knows. He says, well, all I have to do is explore the various options, movement solutions to this problem, and I'll discover one. That's yeah. extremely empowering. It's better. It's not just good for tennis. It's good for the rest of the kid's life. But yeah, he cool. is empowered. He owns that backhand. He knows he could discover it on his own. That's exactly right. Yeah, it forced me to become a better listener and it forced a relatively shy kid, to be honest, to verbally communicate to me and tell me what was going on. It was cool. Yeah, and I'm not even sure that element of it is, is as useful or, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, but the fact that he was able to explore on his own and discover that with your help and guidance is great. I mean, that's, that's exactly what you're looking for. And, and then I was able to, you know, we talk about some things and certainly as we work on this down the road, you know, this is where I'll come in even more as the coach. Like, Hey, Hey, guess what? This can be an effective approach shot. You know, maybe he figures that out on his own, but maybe that's an area a coach can help a lot too. Like, Hey, this can be in a, a heck of an approach shot. It can be used when you're in trouble. It can be used to disrupt the rhythm and pace of a player, you know, that loves top spin, you know, all the things that slice does. This could be used for someone with a semi-Western forehand to keep it low where it's hard for him to dig it out. All stuff that like, you know, the pro and the coach knows that a student probably doesn't know. So that's right. kind of, and it's, that's kind of neat. Yeah. We can get into that stuff later. Yeah. And it's important that you, you know, as a coach, you design practice environments that, that, uh, that people learn that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that the, what you know, and what you see, you need the student, the, the player to learn those same information sources. Like you're playing someone that has a, a slight, a, a semi-Western grip, loves to hit top spin and loves to hit it hard. Well, they need to, you know, you need to advise little games to show them that, hey, when the ball is low, that person can't hurt me as much yeah. as when it's short and high. Yeah. So you help them explore all of those options of playing the game. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. But, so the fundamentals. So, so when I say you had all the elements there, the fundamentals, I mean, people are going to, people are going to chuckle maybe when they, when I say, well, here, here are what I discovered, you know, I'm just giving it some thought. The fundamentals of tennis, they are the court, the <laughs> ball the racket, two to four players, opposing players, and a, a couple of very, very simple rules. Okay, mm -hmm. The rules of tennis. What are the rules of tennis? Well, point starts with a serve. It has to go over the net and into a certain box. It, it must bounce. It's the only shot that must bounce. So the return of serve is the only shot that must be played off of a bounce. And then after that, points are scored based on when a player fails to make a legal shot, meaning doesn't play the ball before it bounces in the court and bounces a second time or hits something or hits them or whatever. And that's it. That's tennis. Those are the fundamentals of tennis. 
Makes sense. You can describe the sport completely using those elements and only those elements. And if any of those elements is missing, it's not tennis. Yeah. It can be tennis-like. It can be foundational to help you maybe learn a little bit of tennis somehow. But those are the fundamental elements of tennis. Yeah. And so when you're helping him with that slice backhand, was there a tennis court? Yeah. Yes. Was there a ball? Yeah. You were trading a ball back and forth. Were there rackets? Yeah. You had, you had strung rackets, not paddles. You know, so you had tennis <laughs> yeah. rackets, right? right? Yeah. And now there were two of you yeah. back and forth. Now I will say you were cooperating. So it's slightly different from tennis. Yeah. So you altered it a little bit there and that you weren't competing. You were, you were rallying back and forth, but you were each trying to make legal shots over and over again. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So you had, you had all the fundamentals there. Yeah. And so that's what, that's what I think coaches need to keep in mind is those are the fundamentals. It doesn't mean they're all going to be there all the time or necessarily have to be there all the time, but you should exclude elements of the fundamentals with a good reason. Mm-hmm. Not just, not just say, Oh, well, we're just going to line kids up, show them a grip, teach them how to swing a racket. You know, I mean that you're, you're, you're missing a lot of the elements of tennis there when you do that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I've done plenty of that over the years where I've, you know, I mean, we talk about the wall. Okay. Well, the wall doesn't have all those elements, right? Yeah. Yet I still think it's good. Well, why is the wall good? Well, you are learning about the racket and the ball and, and you're learning about yourself, one of the players. Right. <laughs> and you're and you're learning how to rally that thing back and forth. Now, if you've never seen tennis played, or if you've never played it yourself, the wall's a little less valuable than if you've done it some, because then you can sort of picture exactly, you know, how hitting this ball this way will be effective in the tennis realm Mm -hmm. so i think it helps to have that's why i think it's important to introduce people to the game to all of the fundamentals of the game right at the beginning and then let them do things like a ball machine or a coach feeding them balls things like that you know they can much much better learn the task if they've been experienced have experienced the game itself Mm -hmm. and then so those are the fundamentals and then i like to think well what are fundamental skills of tennis okay the fundamental skills of tennis have to relate back somehow to the fundamentals. And so I believe the fundamental skills of tennis are perceptual. You have to be able to perceive the size of the court, track the ball. Okay. You have to move, you have to move to intercept the ball and you have to move your arm (laughs) and the racket. And then you have to be able to strike the ball. Tennis is a striking game. It's not a throwing game or a catching game. It's a striking game. Mm -hmm. Right? So those are the, those are the fundamental skills of tennis. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. You have mm-hmm. to be able to, you have to be able to strike a ball to get the point going. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have to be able to track it, move to intercept it. Okay. In order to mm-hmm. play the game. So any of our, say uh, our movement skills, they're all tied. They're all tied to the court and to the ball and mm-hmm. to the opponent and to your racket. Right. Mm-hmm. So those things all interact with each other and the degree to which you can keep those, those things all coupled together, you're going to enhance your learning. Mm-hmm. You're going to do better. Yeah. That doesn't, like I said, with the wall and so forth, it doesn't, they don't all have to be there all the time, but you should always keep in mind, well, what's not there? Why is it not there? If I'm going to feed a ball to a player, how am I going to feed it to the player? And why am I going to feed it to them a certain way? Mm-hmm. So there's, 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 I'm not saying you can't feed. You, you really want to feed sometimes, you know, like you might feed a ball to that guy who you want him to learn how effective a low slice can be. Maybe you feed him some low slices. Mm-hmm. That's fair, right? Yeah, yep. And you say, this, the reason I'm doing this is so that he can learn something that I think will be valuable to him when he plays the game. Yeah. 
it's interesting how, um, you know, how your eyes change as you get older and it has nothing to do with 2020 vision. You just don't track it as well and see it as well. And there's nothing that can correct that. It's just getting older. And I remember like all my battles with Henry where towards the end there, uh, before he passed away, you know, he was taking every set off me. And then, oh, I'd say six months before he died, it was probably 50-50. And before that, I took every single one. And, but the, it, I, one of the only things that allowed me to keep up with him, at this point, he was a, you know, a nine UTR. And I was around probably a nine UTR as a player. <laughs> and um, at this point, the one thing that, that helped me was, um, never thinking about my form. It was trying to see the ball. It would, and it would help me too, but I would, cause my eyes are what they are, but I would try to just even more than ever zero in on that ball off his strings and just see it as well as I can. Cause it's crazy how much your eyes change as you get older. And that was, <laughs> that goes back to your perception. You know, that, that helped me hang with him for a little while until it was too late. <laughs> right. Know, once these kids, once these kids pass us up, there's no going back. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the tracking skill, the timing and coordinating of your movements, both to the ball and the swing, to the incoming speed and direction of the ball. I mean, you, you don't have tennis without that. Yeah. No, you I can't. You, you can't play. So like if you in the extreme example, I always like to use is you turn the lights off. Good luck playing tennis with the lights off. Right. Right. Yeah. Because You can't you can't see the ball. You can't perceive the ball. Yeah. And I think that's where. I think that's where coaches can help because that goes back to like split stepping and footwork patterns and things like mm -hmm. that. I mean, you can develop that by playing the game, but like, I, I definitely, have, you know, I enjoy studying footwork patterns, even watching the pros, like how do they move to this ball or, you know, Henry developed the slide just on his own, just by watching TV, you know, he's like, wow. So when they're really in trouble, they're not stepping back in a semi-open stance, they're going out into a full open stance. And then, then it turns into this slide and he just kind of developed that naturally but there's not there's only been a handful of players that can really do that at his age he was right but remember every every tennis movement comes back to those fundamentals yeah right you know the only you know why are you moving somewhere on a tennis court well i'm moving to intercept the ball You're right my yeah. opponent my opponent hit the ball on the court a certain place i had to move to intercept it then i strike the ball now i gotta re i gotta move again where why how and i see kids are horrible at that. Yeah, for sure. Why are they horrible at that? Well, they've never, you know, they've done a lot of drills where they hit and move back to the center exactly. or they hit and they run around a cone. But that's not why you move to certain places on a tennis court. When I hit a ball a certain place on a court, that will, where I hit it, where my opponent is, my opponent's skill capabilities, those things are all going to determine how and where I'm going to move in on the tennis court. Yeah. And, and by taking an opponent out of it, uh, by taking the, you know, the opponent's different skill set out of it, the opponent's location out of it, then how is it that you're supposed to recover? Yeah. I think we talked about this last week or the week before where, you know, when you do just a standard, you know, we're just warming up, hitting cross-court forehands, and the coach is yelling, you know, you got to recover, you got to recover. Well, recover where and why? Right. And you can simply change that by the coach saying, I can hit it anywhere. And then the person's movement changes. Because yeah. the person needs to cover all of the court, not yeah. just where the coach is presumably going to hit the ball. So, you know, when we do things like, uh, you know, we want to train some tennis movement like a split step. Well, you're, you better have an opponent there to hit the ball because that, that's, what, that's when you need to split step is when you hit the ball. What the heck's the point of the split step? Yeah. The point of the split step is to be ready to move any direction 
when you when you're when you perceive where the ball's going, you need to be ready to move wherever it's hit. Yeah, it's like a coverage team on a on a punt. You know, you come running down and you quote break down. Well, that's essentially them split stepping so that they can move left or right or run right through the person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just saw Nadal at the very end of his match with Taylor Fritz. He uh, was it the, or was it the Alcaraz match? I can't remember what it was, but he served and volleyed, but there was absolutely no split step. Hmm. You could see that his intention was he was going to serve and he was going to get as close to that net as he could. He had a great serve up the tee that was a stretch backhand return and he served and he just ran, served and ran straight forward and spiked the ball winner. Mm-hmm. Volley winner. Unbelievable. No yeah. split step. Why no split step? Because he saw the ball was going to be popped up. He was going to have time. He was going to just run in there. There was no need to split and go wherever the ball went because he already saw where it was going. Mm-hmm. And he just ran to the ball and spiked it. Yeah. I mean, I see examples. I had a girl that, I mean, she'd go into the forehand corner and come out of the corner so slow, I thought she was dragging a piano. It was unbelievable. I'm like, what's going on here? She didn't seem like she was that slow or unathletic. And I'm watching her move. And the reason she was coming out of the corner so slowly was she was split stepping, or sorry, sidestepping, like shuffling. I mean, now I'm like, what are you doing? you're taking forever to get out of that corner why are you doing that she goes our coach you know high school coach or somebody had said you know we need to sidestep shuffle recover or something yeah yeah yeah, shuffle to recover Uh, i'm like like, why is that you know i said quit that you you gotta get out of that corner fast you gotta you gotta cover some ground especially if you hit it down the line yeah you know that they just don't really you know so there's a lot of these context free things that we do you know like we'll We'll have somebody, I used to do this all the time. You run a little spider drill where you start at the, where you're doing, you're trying to do your increasing your tennis speed, right? So you start at the slash mark in the middle and you run to the right sideline, baseline intersection. Then you come back to the slash mark and then you run to the the service line sideline, come back to the middle. Then you run to the, where the T is. Then you come back to the slash mark at the baseline. Mm -hmm. And then you run to the far sideline intersection with the service line and sideline back to the back to the slash mark and then back out to the other opposite baseline and sideline intersection. You just do that and see what your time is. How fast can you go? It's kind of cool, right? Mm -hmm. It's a start and stop and it's like a shuttle run kind of thing, but it's, you know, there's a much better way to train tennis movement than that. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have to do that because you don't have a court, you don't have a partner, you don't have opponents. Great. You know, like me uh, jumping rope in my basement as a kid. Great. I mean, you know, that's not really, it's not very fundamental to tennis, but it's going to get my calf stronger. I'll be more explosive. You know, I'm not on a court at that time, but if you're on a court, well, why would you do something stupid like a star drill like that? Mm-hmm. You can instead make somebody run, say you're feeding even. Okay. I'm just going to feed you a bunch of balls to roughly those locations and you're going to have to hit a shot from there. Yeah. Right. Because that is actual tennis movement. Right. You're going right. to start and stop in a way that allows you to strike the ball over the net and into the court. Then you can talk about maybe planting that outside shoe or like not taking extra steps after you hit or whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or or they're right. gonna learn that because if you throw the next ball to the far corner, they're not gonna right. get to it unless they plant the foot. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like there's this guy, uh, Oscar Wagner that that said you wrote a book called You Can Play Tennis in in two minutes or something like that. Um, and he talked about you know, like unit turn, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like, well, you wanna help somebody do a unit turn? Here's how you do. And instead of feeding the ball right to them. Let's feed it off to the side. Right. So they got to take two or three steps. Even if they're just a beginner, they have to walk over to the ball. Well, what do you do? If you're going to stand in, in some place and I'm going to ask you to walk to your right, you know, three steps, you're going to turn and walk, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Is that a unit turn? Yeah. Yep. 
done. Yeah. So the only way people don't do unit turns is if you're just feeding them the ball right to them all the time. Or if you teach them, you got a sidestep to the ball. I, I, had a, I had a co-coach at one of the clubs I worked at years ago. He was having people sidestep, shuffle step to the ball to hit it. <laughs> like, like, what is going on here? There's nobody that would ever do that on their own without right. poorly yeah. coached. I mean, you, really? You just, you're just sidestepping over a ball that's three steps to your right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it's unconscionable. Yeah. But let's that's talk, what happens. Let's talk a little bit about altitude. You know, yeah. uh, you know we're training often at 5,000 feet. And if we happen to go to Vail or Steamboat for a tournament, we're, you know, almost double that. So, but front range of Colorado, 5,000 feet and our altitude matters. It's, and it affects our, our quote fundamentals. So we, absolutely oftentimes in the group, we talk about the heavy ball or the altitude ball. And this is probably you know, something you should develop at sea level too. But when I say the heavy ball or the altitude ball, you know, I'm talking just more spin, lots of racket speed, more spin and, and something to get that ball down in the court, get it over the net and down in the court. Because there are times, especially when you open a brand new can of balls, you're at a tournament and someone says five minute warm up. you got lively balls that are brand new. You're playing at 5,200 feet, mile high, I mean, it, the ball sails. It's it is different. I mean, if it's a game of misses, it's really a game of misses at this altitude, huh? Yeah, and especially like if it's hot out, you know. So if you get hot, you're in Colorado, brand new balls. That ball's gonna sail. So yeah, the fundamental thing we deal with here regarding uh, the altitude is the air is less dense. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's two things that happen, and one of them we've accounted for, and the other we're not accounting for very well. And then I'll get to explain how that affects the fundamentals. Uh, because one of the things is the ball, right? Mm-hmm. That's a fundamental. Mm-hmm. The ball is different here. Now, how is the ball different? If you were to take a ball from low altitude, a low altitude can of balls, and you bring it up to Colorado and you open that ball up, because we have less air pressure here, the difference between the pressure inside that ball that you just opened and the outside atmosphere is greater. Mm-hmm. That means that ball is going to bounce a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And more pressure inside relative to outside, more bouncing. So what they do for us is they don't pressurize the ball quite as much at the factory when they send us a ball. It's more high altitude ball. That means that it doesn't have as much pressure in it as a low altitude ball. Mm-hmm. So that when you come up here and open it up, the difference between the pressure of that ball, the inside pressure of that ball, and the outside air pressure is the same as it is at low altitude. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yep. So that when we bounce a ball here, from a certain height, it rebounds to the exact same height, you know, within a couple of inches tolerance as a ball would at low altitude. Okay. So instead of being playing with super balls here, we play with a normally bouncing ball. Yeah. Fantastic. So they've accounted for that. But what they haven't accounted for is the aerodynamics. And the aerodynamics is the biggest problem that we face. The fact is that the air is less pressure. It's so it's thinner air. So the drag force on the ball is lower. Mm-hmm. at this at this altitude so when we hit it it doesn't slow down very much mm-hmm. it doesn't slow down nearly as much as it slows down at low altitude now that that drag force is related to the velocity of the ball squared so what that means is if you're not if you're not that skilled not hit playing very high ball speeds and spins here in colorado you don't really notice it it's not that big a deal mm-hmm. so the lower end beginning players uh, young kids um, adults that play you know 3035, maybe even 40 tennis, or even 50 if they don't play with very much ball speed, they don't really notice it that much. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't hear people complaining, beginners and 
you know, unless they're beginners that rip the ball, they don't really complain too much. But the higher up the food chain you get and the faster people play, more speed and spin, the more they gripe. Mm-hmm. And, hey, hey, this is weird. This isn't this isn't what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Because the spin effects are less too. You need more spin to get the ball to do the same amount of dropping mm-hmm. or curving here in Colorado as you do at low altitudes. Mm-hmm. So what that means is effectively when you hit a ball, the court is a lot smaller up here mm-hmm. that you're hitting that you're hitting into. And because the ball doesn't slow down very much when your opponent hits a shot like off to the side, your court's a lot bigger effectively that you have to cover. Right. Because the ball the ball gets there quicker. You have less time to cover that same space. So effectively the court's bigger. Mm-hmm. So what happens is we've we've had players like uh when I was helping coach at CU, we had a kid that was born in a couple of them were born and raised in Colorado. And what we noticed is that lower altitudes, they would quit on balls that people that were trained in lower altitudes, Czech Republic, Sweden, wherever they would go for mm-hmm. because you see a ball leave opponent's racket up here and you know, you can't get there. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you're, you're trained, you know, you're, you're a product of the environment in which you, you learn. Mm-hmm. So they were just habitually not quite going for balls at the margin they could get to. Hmm. that's a problem we had another kid when i was younger who had a very good serve well the serve doesn't slow down very much up here so he's six foot four hammers his serve great kick serve and he's he's a very very good player in colorado but when he goes and plays at low altitude he's not as good Mm -hmm. why not well because that serve comes back Mm -hmm. a lot more (laughs) because it slows down more Mm -hmm. so at the margin the players, in, when he's playing them in Texas or Florida, they're able to return his serve more, and he's unprepared mm-hmm. because he's had so many free points that he's yeah. not that he's that he's unprepared for that, and it's difficult for us to overcome that in training too. Yeah. And then another shot that I would say that you know when you talk about the heavy ball, there is a shot that that I don't think we're able to do here that they're able to do at lower altitude, and that is a ball that's you know maybe five, four, five, six feet over the net hit with spin and pace. Yeah. You know, you see like clay quarters, uh, the people are trained on that. They, they are able to back up, load up and really hit the ball pretty darn hard with a lot of speed and spin. And it comes down into the court. Whereas here it doesn't, you know, that, that ball will just not, if you launch it at a relatively high angle with a decent amount of uh, speed, you just, I mean, you need too much spin almost. You're not able to do it to get it to come down in the court. So, you know, we need to play lower and closer to the net or slower. You know, I think, you know, I, I mean, I sort of had a little theory for a while. I think it's malarkey, but, you know, I, I thought it for a while that kids in Colorado are kind of trained to semi-miss hit the ball <laughs> right? because they, they want to swing fast. But if they catch it cleanly, it's hard to get it in. And so ah. they, they, tend to, they tend to not catch it cleanly. So yeah. I, I, I seemed to, I thought, geez, I think these kids, when we take them down to Vegas, which is still, you know, most tennis players call Vegas high altitude. Yeah, and yeah, we don't call it high altitude. It seems like our kids aren't cleanly hitting the ball. How hard so, is it to extrapolate it out and do the math? You know, because for example, when you go to Coors Field and you watch a Rockies game, I've heard him mm-hmm. say, I can't remember exactly what it is, but there, I've heard him say that a you know a 400 foot home run ball at Coors Field goes exactly whatever 12 feet further than sea level. So yep. can you extrapolate it out on a tennis court at a 75 mile an hour forehand with the exact same spin? You know, how yep. far, if it hits the line at sea level, how far out is it at one mile? It's about 10 feet. Whoa. And so, and that is going to, that's going to vary, like I said, by the altitude, by the, yeah. sorry, by the velocity and by the spin. But yeah, you can absolutely calculate that. In fact, yeah. I had a little email back and forth with a, a guy named Rod Cross, who is a 
uh, engineer in Australia. And I had asked him, you know, because one of the ways we try to accommodate that sometimes is by using the, uh, the green dot ball. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a girl, I had a girl that was coming from Maryland, coming back home for a, a few days and then going to California for NCAAs. And instead of using the normal yellow ball, we used the green dot ball. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like it, it better replicated low altitude tennis. Mm-hmm. And so, but one of the problems with those balls is they're light, right? Oh, so yeah. the fact that they're light means that they slow down more in the air yeah. at any given ball speed. So that helps. But because they're light for any given racket speed that you swing at, the ball leaves your strings faster. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, so I emailed Rod and I said, well, what's the, what's the difference? You know, how, what's the ultimate effect? And he ran it through his little computer simulation thing that he had. And he said, yeah, it looks like it, it still makes a difference, but not the full difference. It was maybe a 5% difference instead of say 10 or something like that. Yeah. So, so it's about a 10% difference in distance, I think. Yeah. So one of the things I did one time two years ago with a girl that was going to go play a low altitude tournament is we took those little yellow French fry things and we made uh, alternate baselines. We took baselines and we moved them back. I think it was about six or seven feet. So instead of playing on a 79 foot court, we played on a court that was, you know, 89 feet mm-hmm. or, or 88 feet or 90 feet or something like that. Yeah. So, so she would get used to hitting more length on her shots. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting that, you know, actually this makes me think of another topic um, as far as you and I are both fans of the 10 and under you know, ROGY that's been around for a long time. And we're yep. both, you know, we believe, in fact, we just swapped some emails and, you know, discussing how we should do that more with older kids and better players and everything else. But um, one thing about that though, is the spin it's on a ball with less pressure. It is more difficult to get that spin. So unfortunately, while it's a, it's a good tool for just general rallying and keeping the ball in court for, let's say, let's just say a six year old on the red ball, let's say a five or six year old on the red ball or, uh, I guess it almost like any age of 10 and under on, even on orange ball, unfortunately though, that maybe the disadvantage of those balls is if you were learning a serve and trying to get some kind of spin on a serve or trying to hit top spin on a forehand or backhand, it's a little bit, it's actually trickier. Like, yes, yeah. the ball doesn't bounce as high. It doesn't bounce out of your strike zone, but it's trickier to get the spin. huh? Yeah, it is. And I've played, you know, a fair bit with the green dot ball and that is, for sure, one of the things, you know, you just can't spin it as much. It yeah. doesn't seem like it doesn't bounce up as high, but you could accommodate that. Like those little, those red balls, there's some of them that are made of uh, like they're foam balls. Yeah. Balls. Now, if those are larger uh, diameter, so just a bigger ball, that'll help. Yep. Because the effect of the spin will be that much greater. Yeah. And Boone, yes. Boone said the foam ball is his go-to when he's indoors because, mm-hmm. you know, so they're, they're, they're really susceptible to wind right. when you're outside, but also mm-hmm. they don't skid. They don't skid like the red ball. That's a kind of a flaw of the red ball is that skid. And um, if he's indoors at an elementary school, he might be on like a basketball court type of surface. So that foam ball grips better. So he's, he's, he's the master of that yeah. age. So yeah, he's a fan of the foam ball indoor, the red ball outdoor, and then obviously orange and green dot too outside yeah yep. yeah and and so that that is another way unfortunately that you, they they made balls that were larger our buddy anish and i you know anish contacted a guy in the uk that had some of these oversized balls called magnums i think it was mm-hmm. uh they were approved in like around 2000 or so a larger diameter tennis ball for a, a approved itf use at higher altitudes mm. and those are great mm-hmm. you know unfortunately the balls that anish got they they had been made so long ago they didn't have any pressure anymore so we have this contraption to repressurize them and 
Anish gave it to me a couple of years ago, and I don't know how to, don't know how to get the thing open even anymore. So we don't don't really not really using them too much. But that's a great that that's the way that we should be playing tennis up here. The balls are the same weight; they bounce the same as a low altitude ball. They're just a little bigger, and because they're bigger, they slow down in the air more. Like you know, they're more susceptible to the wind. Like yeah. like like Dave was saying, that's what you want. You yeah. want a ball that slows down more in the air. And, yeah. and because it's bigger, the spin has a better, more effect. The only difference I found hitting with them was that the acoustics are a little different mm-hmm. because it's a larger ball. The sound is a little different. And that, yeah. that might put people off at first. I don't know. But, but they never caught on. I think the reason they never caught on is that it's a manufacturing nightmare. Yeah. You know, you have these, you have these, it's just a different assembly line yeah. for a bigger ball. Whereas that was the way they do it now. I think it's really easy for the, for the companies heck they might even just take balls that didn't pressurize correctly and label them high altitude yeah they might not even have to do a run at lower pressure for all i know yeah but the balls are very similar so that's yeah so when you think about the fundamentals of the game and how we can scale it the, the tennis court itself you can change the size of it because the actual physical size you know for singles 78 feet by 27 feet humans don't perceive their world in terms of feet and pounds and seconds and things we perceive it in terms of what actions it allows us to do and the tennis court is a very different size if you're four or five years old or if you're john isner and seven feet tall yeah right it's a different size if you're strong than if you're weak so we can scale all of these things to the to the skill level and the strength and development of the people using different weighted rackets balls that are different uh, yeah. compressions and 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 lightness to move through the air so you can change the the height of the net the, the the size of the court the size of the rackets all those things and it's still tennis yeah yeah because right? you don't need a specific thing because yeah. in, in fact i mean a racket that's 12 ounces is a very different racket for me than for somebody that's very very weak yeah so you can vary all of those things but you're still dealing with tennis yeah. you can you can scale these fundamentals and you're still dealing with tennis. So that's, I think that's right. And and I think that like you had said in one of the emails, one of the mistakes of the red, orange, green, yellow thing is tying it to an age. Yeah, no question. We don't need to do that. We need to tie it to stages of development, skill, size, strength, things like that. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for using orange balls with, with top players occasionally. What yeah, the heck? Yeah, maybe as the national governing body, the USTA feels like they've got to have some kind of breakdown, but when they break it down and then that carries over to tournaments, it's tricky because, you know, you and I feel like skill level should be more of an indicator of what ball to use, not age. And, um, you know, just like how I place my groups. I mean, if I have a little 11 year old girl that can crush the 17 year old boys, I'm not putting her with 11 year olds, you know, right, um, right. putting her with the older kids. So, um, but you know, uh, it's tricky because they're just trying to get some kind of uniform to, you know, um, similar structure that will help the game. And they're on to something there. They're on to something yeah. there, but we have a little bit of a question with the age cutoff. Yeah. You want to, you want to use this, you want to use all of these implements, you know, scalings based upon skill and size right? and strength, all those things. And, and age is a proxy for all of those, right? I mean, most, most nine-year-olds aren't as tall as, you know, most 30-year-olds, right. but, but some nine-year-olds are fully grown. So you yeah. never know. So, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, some people are tremendously skilled, yeah. but even the tremendously skilled kids, you know, I think that, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, you didn't see necessarily the best 10 and under kids be the best, you know, 18 and under kids 
is because what you learn on a full-size court, which was pretty common, and you know, 10 and under tennis for a long time was played on a full-size court. So you learn solutions to that problem that are appropriate for the opponent that you're playing, the environment you're playing in, right? The fundamentals yeah. of the game. And, and one of the great solutions, if you're 10 years old, is to loop the ball really high and it bounces over your opponent's head. Yeah. It's devastating. It's a great shot. It's How great. do you, and you, there's just no way to beat that when you're 10. I mean, you can run in and try to take it before it bounces, I guess, you know, so, so there's ways that you can try and thwart that, but you're developing skills that are, that are, that are suboptimal going forward. Yeah. <laughs> if you're playing on a court that's that big, you know, it's like a kid learning to shoot baskets on a 10 foot basket when you got to just chuck it, right. almost throw, almost throw it like a football to get it up there or yep. take it from your hip and throw it all the way up. That's going to work for that, but that's not a skill that you're going to want. That's not going to scale very well later on. Yeah. Well, Hey, what's on deck for us as we wrap this one up? It's a good question. Well, we might have to tackle pickleball next. Yeah, would maybe, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That that is, as I said in in my reply to you this morning, there is something fishy about. They claim pickleball is easy to learn, but tennis is hard. I'm, I'm, I don't remember tennis being hard to learn during the tennis boom. So something has gone wrong. That's right. The rackets were smaller. We yeah. weren't any more skilled yet. No one ever thought tennis was that hard to learn. Then now all of a sudden it's hard to learn, but pickleball's not. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, we've always remarked when you go to a public park and you see a couple of 40 year olds hacking around that clearly have not played much tennis in their lives. It's, it's awesome. I mean, they can hack yeah. around and rally to 30, you know, yeah. I mean, it doesn't look pretty, but who cares? Like it's a, it's actually kind of a simple game. Two people can go out as adults. Once they have some tracking and prediction skills, you know, and they're over age 10, you can hack around. Maybe it's all slice with the quote wrong grip, but you can hack around and have a good time with tennis. It's not that hard. No, initially, initially. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, to, to get really good at anything isn't easy, is it? Right. But yeah. you know, I don't think, I don't think there's a lot of correlation between skill and enjoyment. Yeah. We, yeah. We need, need to get people out there playing the game more. And hopefully yeah. that's what, hopefully that's what's going to happen in Loveland. Yeah. You know, maybe we can talk about the, the optimal density of players and how tennis centers. I mean, it's one of my, one of my things I've wondered about, you know, what's, what's gone wrong and, you know, U.S. tennis over the years. And, yeah. and one of my little hobby horses is that it's the, you know, two tennis courts at a park yeah. and homeowners associations, each having a couple of tennis courts as opposed to tennis centers. And so, I don't know, maybe we could talk about that. I think there's a huge value to the a town having a tennis center. Yeah. Like Loveland is going to have, it has, hasn't really taken hold, but if you can get something going up there at that tennis center, I think lots of tennis centers is a lot better than every private residence having a court or HOA's having two courts. Cause you know, tennis, again, to get back to the fundamentals, you need players, you need opponents and you need opponents of, you know, varying skill levels and yeah, in, I've order, got, in order to get good at the game. Yeah. As I plan my whole program, I'm thinking, man, I've got it made as far as infrastructure and facilities. I've got it absolutely made. And I keep emailing, you know, the bosses with the city of Loveland and, and I, I just keep telling them like, I, if possible, I want everything at North Lake park. I want yep. it to be a central location yep. where all we're always at that park, you know? So, yep. you know, I've got, maybe I have staff doing something while I'm doing something else, but we're all there together and you get that sense of community and just that hanging out and it's going to be cool. I, I, I don't want to be spread out. I want it to all be there. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, there's certainly an element of convenience if, you know, nobody's very far from a park that's got tennis courts, 
you know, in, in theory, you would say, well, that's great. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go far to play. But, you know, within a town, I mean, how far is anybody really going to have to go within Loveland to get to that tennis center? Not that far. Not that far. No. And then the convenience of having everybody there, different ages, you can drop a kid off and spend the entire day there. You know, I mean, if I go and meet a buddy at a park and I'm 12 years old and there's two courts there and none of them are it's just me and my buddy using it. I mean, maybe we're going to get a little sick of each other. You know, we're not probably going to hang out at that park with those with those one that one court, just the two of us and play for eight hours. Yeah, it's you know, maybe if you're really exceptional, you might. But but instead, you go to a tennis center where there's lots of kids. Maybe you're doing other you know, you're playing badminton and table tennis, too. You're hitting on the wall. You're playing with kids that are older than you adults you just hang out spend the day i mean i think i think that's what happened a lot more during the tennis boom than when we sort of got splintered with with homeowner associations but i don't know i could be all wet on that but yeah but it's it's phenomenal i got 12 courts with lights i have a hitting wall i have a shelter i have restrooms i have a lake i have a swim beach i have a train i have a fishing pond for kids i i mean yeah, literally, you could drop your kid off with me and then take your other kid to the train and ride around the loop or head to the playground, go catch fish, swim beach, a huge lake. I mean, it's got it's got it all. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you think about, you know, when you hear about kids who got into golf and they got great at golf like Tiger Woods or people, you know, what do they do? They immerse themselves totally in it. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you have to do it 12 months a year, but in the months when you're doing it, just being immersed in it at a tennis center where everybody's playing and you're hanging out there all day and you can go do a few other little activities, but you're all just, you're all just there for the day. It relieves the parents of the burden of driving the kid everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. Just ride your, ride your bike to the tennis center and spend the day there learning to play the game. Yeah. I think, you know, I think culturally, maybe that's one of the things that we're, we're sort of missing yeah. to have, to have a ten, another tennis boom. Well, speaking of fishing, I should let you, gather wood and check the traps yeah we got the streams are starting to run up here i like it <laughs> yeah hopefully hopefully it won't get too windy blow my all my traps down yeah are you stock on propane and all the essentials i'm good yep trees huh? i got trees you know trees for heat and cooking and everything so plenty of ammo plenty of ammo just in case oh yeah yeah, yeah you don't want to yeah you don't want to try and storm the trapper cabin you'd be making a fatal mistake oh yeah all right. Well, until next time, we'll uh, we'll catch you in a week or so. Very good, sir. All right. Have a good day.